You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Good morning, everybody. Happy Memorial Day weekend. If you are uh, active or veteran military service, thank you. We thank you. And of course, today we remember families uh, who have family members who have died in military service. And um, speaking of Memorial Day, we also now remember 19 children and two adults killed in Texas. And so I'd just like to invite you to join me as we pray. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we come to you today in a nation that is torn with grief and confusion and frustration and anger and all the natural debates and the crossfire of opinions and politics. But Lord, we come to you as a nation that needs your help. We come to you and we pray, Lord, that you would heal us from this psyche of predatory violence that seems to reside in our national soul. And we pray, Lord, that you would heal our nation, heal our own hearts. And whatever aspect of this kind of violence is within us, we ask you to bring it into the light, to bring us to repentance and to healing and to the peace that is the promise of your spirit. Lord, our nation is in need of your healing and of your presence and of your power. And we know that there will be continual debates about guns and gun control. We pray for our leaders that you would give them wisdom and discernment. Jesus, you said what comes out of a person is because of what's inside of a person. And whatever the, the weapons, we know, Lord, that our hearts are the place of need. So we ask for your healing. We pray for these families in Texas who have lost children and to those families who have lost a spouse, a mom. And we continue to grieve for those who were killed in Buffalo we're just asking for your healing, Lord. Heal our land. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so I wonder, I think it's probable that most of us have some things that are part of our memory that's something we've seen that we'll never forget. Probably many of us have a number of things that would fall in the category of something we've seen that we'll never forget. Now, sometimes these are beautiful, so let's keep it in balance. Sometimes these are beautiful memories. It was so beautiful, you'll just never forget it. And this stays with you, and it's part of the gift of life and the goodness of God, and, and this memory gives you a sense of joy and gratitude. But, of course, there are memories that are really hard, really painful, and perhaps you have seen things that you will never forget. 
You hear the phrase, right? You can't unsee it once you've seen it. Years ago, I was on a short fishing trip with a friend who's about a dozen years older than I. And our relationship was relatively new and we hadn't spoken too deeply about a lot of personal stuff. But I noticed that when he fishes, he's always like taking super care of fish that are caught to return them to the water and not harm them. I know for some of you, the idea of catch and release fishing doesn't make sense, but nonetheless. And so we had been fishing one afternoon and after we were finished fishing, we were sitting chatting about the day of fishing and a mosquito landed on his hand and he went like this. And I said to him, just kind of off the cuff, you don't like killing anything, do you? And he said to me, I did enough killing in Vietnam. I don't ever want to kill another thing in my life. I didn't see that killing, but I remember the conversation with him, and it's a conversation I'll never forget. So let's enter a bit of a storyline here. We're going to talk today in our final weekend of before and after, and we're going to talk about a centurion. Centurions are mentioned in various places in the Gospels, and my imagination is always running with behind-the-scenes stuff in the Gospels. Like, there's a lot of stuff we see in accounts and narratives, and it's very clear who's who and what's what. But then there's other stuff that it makes you wonder, hey, could that guy be the same guy that was mentioned there, but isn't mentioned by name? Like, could the centurion at the cross be the same centurion from Capernaum who asked Jesus to heal his servant? Probably not, but it's possible because during the Jewish Passover, the Romans were always fearful of a Jewish uprising, and they annually brought garrisons of extra soldiers into Jerusalem to keep the peace during the Passover because they were concerned about this threat. So it would not be at all unusual that a centurion from Capernaum came the 80 miles to Jerusalem during Passover. I think you get the picture. Centurions are mentioned in a few different places. This centurion... We don't get a whole lot about him, but we get enough to pique our imagination. This guy seems different. This guy seems somehow thoughtful or reflective in ways that perhaps a lot of people weren't. So let's read from Mark 15, 27 to 41. <clears throat> they crucified two rebels with him, Jesus, of course, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land till three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said with a loud cry. Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. 
And in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs, and many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So there's always this interesting factor behind the accounts that we have of the scriptures, like where's the subtext? What's the story behind the story? So who is this centurion? Well, a little bit about centurions in general, right? You probably grasp it. Even if you didn't know, you could do your own lingual math and figure out that a centurion was a commander of 100 men. So that's the century idea, the centurion, commander of 100 men. Centurions had to be at least 30 years old to become a centurion, which has an interesting symmetry because a rabbi had to be 30 years old to become a rabbi. So you've got this one sort of thread in the Roman army and you've got this one thread in Jewish belief. And so a centurion had to be 30, to be a centurion rabbi had to be 30 to become a rabbi. Centurions were hardened men. They were battle-tested, they'd endured a lot. Centurions were used to killing, they killed a lot of people. They did it most of the time without a second thought. Back then, the world was different than it is today. The Roman psyche was very different than a modern psyche. There was no real sense of the dignity of a human being, the value of a human life. And so a Roman centurion probably had killed many, many people. And a Roman centurion also had the job of overseeing executions, which often meant crucifixions. You may know this, but some historical research suggests that in the course of the Roman Empire, the Romans probably crucified somewhere around 250,000 people over the course of, of the Roman Empire. So centurions were trained killers. They were familiar with killing. They'd done it a lot. I suppose if you had killed so many people, a human death could pass without really getting your attention. But something, of course, about taking a human life and the finality and what you have perpetrated would get even just a slightly sensitive soul's attention. So here's what the picture is developing. You got all these extra Roman soldiers in Jerusalem because it's the Passover, because the Romans did this because they're concerned for an uprising. And so we don't know if this guy was stationed in Jerusalem or if he was brought into Jerusalem. We don't know if he was single or married, but he certainly would have been part of a bunch of conversations about what was going on in Jerusalem during the Passover. If he's single, there would have been conversations among the Roman soldiers about what's the deal with this guy Jesus I'm hearing about. There would have been a lot of scuttlebutt about this guy Jesus and what are we going to do and what's happening. Well, I heard Pilate said this and I heard that the Jewish leaders say this. If he was married, it's easy for my imagination to picture this centurion going to work on that particular Friday morning. So he reports into work after having had a conversation with his wife. And on that particular Friday during the Passover with Jerusalem swollen with all the Jewish pilgrims who had come, she says to him, what's your day looking like today, sweetheart? And he says, I don't know, it seems pretty routine. I mean, it's all this normal Jewish stuff and all the concerns about the uprisings. And she says, man, those Jewish people are weird. And he says, yeah, for sure. She said, the stuff they believe is crazy. Don't get wrapped up in that. We have all the power. We have the armies. We have Rome. We have Caesar. Don't worry about it. Just go do what you got to do and take care of business. And so he goes off to work. She had asked him a little bit about this guy, Jesus. He said, I've heard about him, and I've heard that there's a lot of debate about him. 
And so he reports into work, and after being there for a few moments, he gets word that Pilate wants to see him. So he reports to Pilate, and he says, yes, sir. And Pilate says, uh, we've got a maelstrom on our hands. We have a problem brewing here, and it's not looking good. What would you like me to do, sir? He said, well, have you heard about this guy, Jesus? Yes, sir, I've heard about Jesus. He's some kind of Jewish leader, like itinerant healer or teacher that I've heard about. Yeah, 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 Pilate says. That's exactly right. Well, the Jewish leaders want him killed. And this would solve their problem, they think, about the potential problem of someone overtaking their religion. He's like, yeah, okay, but is he, is he worthy to be killed? I mean, has he done anything that warrants being executed? And Pilate says, here's the problem. I don't think so. So I don't want to see him killed, but if I don't now, the crowds have gotten to such a point that now we're going to have a surprise Jewish uprising on our hands that came through a door that we never expected. So what would you like me to do, he says to Pilate. Pilate says, I'm afraid we're going to have to participate in a crucifixion. And he says, I think you're going to have to crucify him, and I think you're going to have to oversee the crucifixion, but there's one thing I want you to do first. I want you to take him in the praetorium, and I want you to have the guys beat him and, and flog him and do it extra so that maybe when the Jewish people see the degree of his beating, they'll say, okay, okay, that's enough. And we can save him from the crucifixion. So this centurion perhaps is put in place to be the guy who oversees what happens that day in Jerusalem to Jesus. It's unlikely that he would have been the one directly to be doing everything, but he would have been the one standing there giving orders to everybody to do what was done. And so this extra kind of flogging, you may know, would have happened when a Roman soldier had a whip that was made of cords that had metal or bone barbs in the cords. And so when they would flog your back, the metal or the bone barbs would grab into the flesh. And in time, you would have basically a mixture of blood and flesh that looked like red jello. And so Pilate tells him, take a few of the guys and go into the praetorium and work him over and flog him. And then maybe if it's bad enough, spare his life. The Jews will agree that that's enough. But if they don't, then you're going to have to oversee the crucifixion. And if it comes to crucifixion, I want you to be there. I want an eyewitness the whole time. I want to hear from you personally that you saw him and that you can testify that he's dead when he dies. Something like this had to unfold as the story moves along. So interestingly enough, the Romans called their Caesars sons of God because they had deified their Caesars. And so now all of a sudden you've got this really crazy mixture of religion and power rolling out in Jerusalem on that particular Passover Friday. Like they're the sons of God and then you've got this Roman power and you've got the big armies, the chariots, the horses, and everything that appears to have all the power. You can't read the story with any attentiveness and miss that there's a huge question about who has the power in play. And so this Roman soldier is watching, observing, considering what Jesus is doing as the soldier, the centurion, our guy, is giving orders to his men. 
He's watching how Jesus is facing it all. Okay, in verse 31, when Jesus was put on the cross, it says, in the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. You know this, but in life, there are various junctures where there's a very important difference between the word can't and won't. And I could tell you so many stories about how I've seen this roll out in my life and you've probably seen it in your life. Is the person not changing because they won't or because they can't? Is the person doing this because they can't help themselves or because they won't help themselves? You get the picture. And so the Jewish leaders are saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Actually, he can save himself, but he won't save himself because he's gonna sacrifice himself to save you. When you are willing to forego what you could do for a higher sacrificial redemptive purpose, there is a remarkable expression of authority and love woven together. And so this centurion is going to see this all unfold. In John 19, 10, and 11, you may remember that earlier in the morning when Pilate was interrogating Jesus and Jesus was only marginally answering his questions, Pilate says to him, you don't speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Well, wait a minute. All the authority is getting turned upside down on its head here in the way this day is rolling out. And all the appearances of power are being shown up to not be what they appear to be. And so this Roman centurion sees Jesus go through all of these experiences and he's on the cross. And you may remember that when he was on the cross, John 19, 25 to 27 tells us that near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and her sister, as well as Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, this is John, here is your mother. So from that hour, this disciple took her into his home. In other words, while Jesus is being crucified, nails in his hands and his feet, he's thinking about taking care of his mother. The centurion had never seen anything like this before. Most of the time when people were crucified, there was either a pathetic crying, screaming, yelling in the pain, the pathos of human sin unleashed in a cross, or there was cursing the Romans. Never had he seen anybody on a cross whose thoughts had nothing to do with himself. Later on in the account, you may remember, that Jesus cried out, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they're doing. Forgive them? Forgive who? Forgive the Jewish people for putting me here? Yes. Forgive the Roman people for putting me here? Yes. Forgive us and our sin that put him here? Yes. But if you were that Roman soldier and you were the one in charge of this crucifixion and Jesus says, forgive them, if you had an ounce of sensitivity, you couldn't escape that he's saying, Father, forgive him, for he does not know what he's doing. And it appears to me that this man has that kind of sensitivity. Okay, so Jesus will be sacrificed 
to offer conversion to life in him to us. But to enter that conversion will ask a sacrifice of us. So you see the symmetry? I hope you do. Jesus will sacrifice himself to offer us the conversion of new life in him, but to enter that conversion will ask a sacrifice of us. Let me explain a little bit. We've been through a number of weeks on the before and after series. Paul, Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, Peter, the blind man, and now the centurion. Every single one of them who said yes to Jesus, for real, paid a price for it. There is a sacrifice to say yes to Jesus Christ for real. I'm not talking about church games and cultural Christianity. I'm talking about a sincere receiving of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in your life, personally. For Paul, Paul was the heir apparent to become the high priest of Jerusalem. You know that he lost his job over saying yes to Jesus. You know that he lost the favor of his family over saying yes to Jesus. And then when he said yes to Jesus, he needed the fellowship of the Christians, but the Christians were all wigged out by him because he'd been killing Christians. So now he lives in this netherworld of a no man's land where he said Jesus is Lord, but he's got no people. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. If you're a Pharisee and you said yes to Jesus, that's a pretty good picture too, a pretty good script to take you to the unemployment line. And you wonder what Nicodemus's family would have said. You said, yes to Jesus, you're a Pharisee. Do you know what you're doing? Do you have any idea? And then the Samaritan woman to whom Jesus lovingly revealed the truth of her life and she had found this new life and healing is going go to tell, go tell people that she's found new life in Jesus. And what are they going to say? Are you kidding me? Aren't you the woman who kind of sleeps around with everybody? Like what? I mean, what a joke. There have been a lot of people whose past was sketchy and they sincerely came to Jesus and the church failed to receive them because they said, well, you got a really sketchy past. She's going to pay a price. Peter was a fisherman, small town boy growing up on the Sea of Galilee. Talk about your life taking a trajectory change. He's throwing his nets into the water one day and Jesus walks by and says, follow me. And now he's going to take a complete different direction in his life and Jesus will do that when he comes into your life and when you say yes to him. The blind man was castigated for being blind because of his sin. And so when he was healed, everybody ridiculed him. And now the centurion, at the very least, when he's going to say yes to Jesus, he would be considered weak. Many, many people throughout history have looked at Christians and said, oh, they do that because it's a crutch, because they're weak people and this Jesus is a crutch for their weakness. That's been a long, long storyline about Christianity. And I feel pretty confident that the Centurion would have been indicted that way. Or more so, he would have been called a traitor. You see, when you say yes to Jesus, the gods of the culture are not going to like you for saying, my God is not the gods of the culture. Whether it's the large culture, let's just call it general American culture, or whether it's a subculture of your family or a subculture of your workplace, when you say yes to Jesus, truly as Lord and Savior, there will always come some level of sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed himself to offer us this new life, and when we truly say yes to him as Lord, there will be a sacrifice on our behalf. All of those people paid a price for saying yes to Jesus, and every person since them who sincerely says yes to Jesus pays a price as well. 
However, Robert Mulholland says, one of the deepest mysteries of a Christ-referenced life is that only by losing all, by becoming utterly devoid of all self-referenced dynamics, by becoming nothingness, do we gain it all? Do we gain a life whose joys are ravishing, its peace profound, its humility the deepest, its power world-shaking, its love enveloping, its simplicity that of a trusting child? At the very simplest, to become a Christian is at some point to come to a place of praying, God, forgive me, please, of my sin. And now I lay down my life and receive you, Jesus, as Lord of my life. That's a sacrifice, and it will have implications in our lives. So the centurion's life, what was it like? Well, for sure, a centurion was like the epitome of a man's man. I mean, you've seen pictures of them, right? Even in like children's Bibles, you know, these guys are all buff and they got their big intimidating helmets on and they're, you know, these things that come over their jaw lines and they got these square jaws and these huge biceps. These guys are the, are the men of a man's culture. But, you know, there's a lot of appearance in the world and we human beings are really good at creating appearances of one thing when the inner reality is quite another. I was at a lunch a few weeks ago and a guy who, we'll use the term, quote, is a successful businessman, was speaking about his life of spending time with businessmen and discipling them and seeking to help them know life in Christ. And this is what he said. He said, almost without exception, every successful businessman I have spent time with on the inside is a lonely man the question of finances in his life is a hard topic, particularly on the home front. And he's got gnawing inner questions about what my life is amounting to and what it really means. So behind all the nice cars and houses and clubs is the inside of a questioning person. That's not a surprise, right? So behind all the appearances of a centurion and all his power, then we come to what's the inside of this person? And what we're going to begin to realize is that what he ultimately says is, surely this man was the son of God. You note in the Gospels, conversion is always to Jesus. Like, let me say it again. Conversion is to Jesus, period. It's not to Christianity. It's not to the church. It's to Jesus. Conversion is always to Jesus. And Jesus is always wanting to know, what do people say about me? In Mark 8, here's a picture of this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he said to them, who do people say I am? Right? Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, what do people believe about the Ten Commandments? Who do people believe the coming Messiah is going to be as prophesied in the Old Testament? Who do people believe Moses really was? His question is, who do people say that I am? And that is the fundamental, personal, laser-like question from the heart of Jesus. Eugene Peterson said, the Jews wanted to talk about Jesus, but he wanted them to decide about him. They wanted to get into an argument, but he wanted to get into a relationship with them. We very often make a great play at getting all the facts before committing ourselves. In a kind of pseudoscientific ritual, we consider and study and discuss, but never put the pieces together and become that which we are being called to be. There's a guy who was a well-known minister in the 1950s named Sam Shoemaker. He wrote a poem called, So I Stand by the Door. 
It was his treatise of his ministry life. And to him, the door was the place of conversion where people crossed the line and entered life with Jesus. And he said, the great joy of my ministry life is to stand by the door and hold it open so people can come in. But he said, over my career, I have observed that many, many people will stand outside that door. They'll stay near the door. They'll walk around the door. They'll glance inside the door, but they will never walk inside the door for a host of different reasons and obstacles that would be personal. But there's an old story about conversion and change. And that quote is, we only really change when staying the same is harder than making the change. So making change is not easy. There'll always be sacrifice to it. Jesus understands this. Of course, he understands it better than all of us. And so the grim parade of a crucified man makes its way out of Jerusalem to a hill called Golgotha, where the mocking and the spitting and the darkness and the pathos of human nature comes out along the way. And then there are the nails and there's the pounding and there's the yelling and there's the chaos. But look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus... You know what's interesting about the cross? There's very clear distinctions about who's standing where. It says the disciples were at a distance, the women were at a distance, the centurion's right in front of him. In front of him, the centurion stood there in front of Jesus and watched this happen. It couldn't have rolled out except that there was eye contact with Jesus. It couldn't have rolled out except the centurion looked there and looked at Jesus and Jesus looked at him. And I wonder if Jesus was looking at him when he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He stood there. He saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. He's right except for the past tense because in three days was will turn to is. The centurion stood there, he saw, and he said. He stood, he saw, he said. He stood there in front of Jesus, he saw how he died, and he said, surely this man is the son of God. And so word comes from Pilate, hey, there's a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. He asked me for permission to take the body of Jesus. I gave him permission. I want you to stay there until this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, takes the body. I want eyewitness from you assurance that the body is dead, that Jesus is dead. And the centurion's processing it all. A.W. Tozer said, in coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up into a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. And so the centurion who had been there eye to eye, standing straight across from Jesus, can now confirm that this man, Joseph of Arimathea, had taken the body. And now this long, grim Friday of work is done. And now this centurion has seen something he will never forget. And so I imagine the centurion walking home from work and he comes in the house and his wife says, so how was your day at work, honey? And he says, I became a Christian today at work. And she says, you what? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you gave up your life that we could have life. 
Lord, I, I can't help but imagine we all hear and process all of this through our own life, our own reflections, our own considerations. What are the sacrifices? What does it mean? What about what people will think of me? What will they say? What will they do? Lord, we come to you and we bring all of that to you and we bring all of that into your sovereign love. And we hear you saying to Peter after you had restored him, you follow me, you follow me. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for all these people who you brought to life through your death. And now would you bring this life ever, ever more fully to life in us through your spirit. We pray in your name, amen.